Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night. All the beasts of the forests prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labour until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan which you form to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles. He who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord uh, and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show us uh, your great and glorious works, that we would see them, that we would know you who stands behind them and who does them, uh, and that we would uh, be able to trust you. Uh, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
I don't know about you, but um, whenever I meet uh, anybody for the first time, uh, I often start by uh, start off by asking their name, and usually after that, uh, the next question that I ask is, uh, "What do you do? Uh, what's the main thing that occupies your time?" Uh, and often I think when, that when you meet someone for the first time, that's uh, a lot of what you talk about. You just talk about what it is uh, that, uh, that you do, uh, what it is that they do. Uh, and I often seem to find myself asking lots of questions about what it is uh, that people do, and, and you really spend most of the conversation really talking about that, I think. Uh, and I think that's because you find a lot of out about a person by asking about what they do. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about who God is and what he's like, uh, we've seen that he is the God who is there, he's exalted above the highest heavens, but also intimately involved in the details of our life. Uh, we've seen that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We've seen that God is both just and merciful, uh, that in the cross of Jesus, God maintained both his justice and poured out his mercy to those who entrust themselves to Jesus. So we thought about uh, who God is and, and uh, his name and what that means, but today we want to think about what he does, uh, because when we think about what God does, we understand a lot about who he is, uh, and, and so this morning we're trying to answer that question, in what way is God involved in our world? In what way is God involved uh, in our world? We obviously don't have time to think about all the ways that God is involved in our world, but we're going to focus on three of the key things, I think, that God uh, has done and on uh, which God is doing. The most obvious, I think, and, and maybe the most foundational thing that can be said about God is that he created everything. Uh, we thought briefly about that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the God who is there. But it's important, I think, to come back to that idea again because it completely undergirds uh, everything about our relationship with God. The fact that God created everything is found in lots of places in the Bible. It's found there in the very first chapter of the Bible where God lays out that we find there the pattern uh, uh, of which, with which God created the world. Uh, and that pattern is reflected then in Psalm 104. So verse 2, the Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beam of his uh, upper chambers on their waters. Or verse 5, he set the earth in its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But there are other places too, uh, like Isaiah 45, it is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretched out the heavens, I marshaled their starry host. Uh, or Psalm 33, you should have these on the, the handout that uh, you might have got on the way in. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. It's so important for us to understand that God made the world because that's crucial for understanding our relationship to him and our obligations to him. The fact that God created the world means that everything, including us, belongs to him. So this is Psalm 24, it says, the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Why do they belong to him? For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. It belongs to him because God made it. 
The creation of the world grounds God's ownership of the world. We think that the world belongs to us. We think that our lives belong to us. We think that our destinies belong to us, that our possessions belong to us. We think that our land and our homes homes belong to us, but they don't. Not first and foremost, they belong to God. That shapes how we live. If my life belongs to God, then how I want to use my life How I want to use my life is not the most important thing, but the most important thing is how God wants me to use my life. If my possessions belong to God, then what I want want to do with them is not the most important thing. The most important thing is what does God want me to do with my possessions? If my possessions belong to God rather than to me, then that shapes my generosity as well, doesn't it? Because this is not mine and I have to desperately hang on to it, but this is God's gift which he's entrusted to me, which I can use to serve God and others. And I think that idea of God's ownership of the world shapes how we respond to some of the crises of our times as well. I think of the Aboriginal, uh, the kind of the, the Aboriginal land issue. The impasse that neither side can get past is that the world belongs to God. We think the world that, that our land belongs to us, but it doesn't. It belongs to God. One of the reasons that uh, people around the world are afraid of refugees is because we think that the land belongs to us. Our country belongs to us. How dare you come and take our land from us? How dare you take away our level of comfort? And our job security. And our personal security, maybe. We can't share it because... We're afraid to share it because we think that our land, our country belongs to us and not to them. But actually the world belongs to God. That doesn't answer all the thorny problems of those issues. But until we understand that the world belongs to God, we can never make any headway. That leads us to the second thing that results, I think, from God's creation of the world, and that is, not only does God own the world, but he is the Lord of it. That is, it's up to God what happens with the world. So it says in Nehemiah, you alone are the Lord. Why? You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. God is Lord Sovereign, he's ruler over everything because he made everything. Because he made us and because he made the world, he gets to set the boundaries and the purposes for the world. Because he made us and the world, he gets to decide on, gets to decide on how the world should be used and how our lives should be lived. That's his prerogative as the designer of the world and as the owner of the world. Imagine for a moment that you make something, you might, you know, maybe it's a vase, you make an extraordinarily beautiful vase and you spend years of your life making it. You carefully work out the design, the shape, the glazing, you spend hours painting the outside, making it look beautiful and when you finish, it's everything that you wanted it to be. And then someone comes along and they decide that 
instead of putting flowers in your vase, the very thing for which you designed it, they decide that they'd like to use your vase as a hammer to bash in the nail that they need. Well, I'll just use that. Of course, the end result is obvious, isn't it? It's smashed into pieces, it's destroyed, it's, it's irretrievable. And yet that's really what we do with God. God's made something. He's made the world. He's made us to be part of the world. He's designed it, he's planned it according to his purpose to be beautiful, to be wonderful according to his design. And we in in our assumed cleverness come along and we think to ourselves, well, I know how to use this world, I know how to use this life. We ignore God's purpose for us and for the world. We devise our own cleverly devised purposes. We think that we're making things better, but actually what we're doing is we're smashing our world and ourselves into pieces. Irretrievable, lost. What does God do? God has created He spoke the world into existence and that grounds his ownership of the world and his authority over it. But God didn't just create everything and then let it go. God also controls and upholds everything. He looks after everything. Uh, In fact, in numerous places in the Bible, God's creation of the world uh, is what undergirds and assures us that God continues to work in the world. Uh, And that's clear here in Psalm 104, which we read just before. So in verses 5 to 9 of Psalm 104, the psalm describes how when God created the world, he set the boundaries between the water and the land. God assigned places for the water to flow. So verse 6, you covered it with the watery depths of the garment, the waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. But then in verses 10 to 18, the psalm describes how God is controlling the waters now. So verse 10, he makes springs pour water into the ravines, it flows between the mountains. And then from those waters comes food and refreshment for all the animals. So verse 11, they give water to all the beasts of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. In the same way in verse 19, the psalm describes how God created the sun and the moon at the beginning He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. But then verse 20, that describes how God continues to control them and the impact that that has on the rest of creation. So you bring darkness, it becomes night and all the beasts of the forest prowl. Uh, And God's control extends over every aspect of his creation, not just over the water and the land, not just over the sun and the moon, but over every aspect of his creatures. So verse 27, all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. God gives and he takes away. He gives breath and he takes breath away. He gives food and he withholds it. In fact, the picture that the Bible paints is that God is in control of everything. He's in control of every circumstance of the world. Nothing is beneath his care and concern and nothing is outside his control. 
listen to these words from Psalm 135. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. God does whatever he pleases in all creation. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Even the things that we think are chance events are actually according to God's purpose. So Proverbs 16, the lot or the die, the dice is thrown into the lap, but it's, every decision is from the Lord. We think we roll the dice and it's just chance, but no, God's in control of that as well. And God is in control of the great events of history. So Job says he makes nations great. And he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Even distress and suffering and evil is not outside God's sovereign control. So God says through Isaiah, I form the light and create darkness, I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And that control of God extends even to the very details of our lives. So David says in Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All the days that you ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God's planned out even the details of our lives before they come to be. And Jesus says that God's care and concern for our lives extends even down to the hairs on our head. They're numbered, Jesus says. God knows every one. There's no greater truth, I think, no greater truth that we can apprehend to give us certainty and solidity in our life than the fact that God is in control. And that God is in control not just of some things, but everything. God's in control of nature. He's in control of gale force winds. He's in control of hurricanes and cyclones and earthquakes. He's in control of the plants growing in your garden. He's even in control of the weeds. He's in control of the plane that you fly in. He's in control of the cars coming toward you on the other side of the highway. He's in control when you lay your head down on the pillow. And he's in control when you wake up again. He's in control of every single breath that you breathe and every single beat of your heart. He's in control when you lose somebody that you love. He's in control when your child falls ill or when they move to the other side of the world. He's in control of world affairs. 
He's in control of the stock market and the financial system and the government. And because God is in control, that means that we can pray. If God wasn't in control, then there wouldn't be any point praying. Praying would be more like, well, I hope maybe there's a chance, God, that you can do something about this. I don't know. This time it might be a bit outside your power. No, the fact that God is in control grounds our prayers, doesn't it? It gives us a motivation to pray. We can pray because we know that God's in control. We don't know what God's going to do, but we know that he has the power to do something about it. We can pray and we can rest because we know that God is in control. In fact, we can rest even knowing that God is sovereign over the evil that happens in the world. At one level, I think that's a huge encouragement, isn't it? God is in control of everything, not just of the good, but also God's sovereign even over evil. But at another level, I think that's really hard for us to understand. If God is in control, why does he let evil go on? Is God evil himself? Well, we know that can't be true. The Bible describes God as blameless and holy, and we know that God is a God of great compassion and mercy because he sent his own son to die on the cross. That's how much God hates evil. He's worked hard to deal with it. But on another level, it's so hard for us to understand, isn't it? What's going on? One solution to the problem that people give is that people say God gives people free will. That is, why is there evil in the world? There's evil in the world because people are evil. Another answer to uh, to the question of why is there evil in the world? Another answer is to say that suffering is all the direct result of specific sins. But if that was the answer to the question, then the Old Testament book of Job would be a much shorter book. In that book, Job spends about 40 chapters wondering why he's suffering so much. He loses everything he owns, all his children, every single one of them, is killed in a terrible act of violence. Job himself is struck down with sickness and he spends pages and pages crying out, wondering what's going on. If, Job's, if the answer to Job's question, what's going on, was just, well, God's given people free will, then it would be a much shorter book, isn't it? wouldn't it? It could have all been over in one sentence. Job's questions could all have been answered in one sentence. That would have been it. Job, don't you know the reason that you're suffering is because I've given people free will and I've left them to have control over this world. I can't do anything about it. I'm sorry. You'll have to take it up with them. But God doesn't say that in answer to Job's questions. Instead, God spends pages telling Job that he made the world, that he controls it, and that Job just needs to trust God. Listen to what Job says after God finally speaks. 
Job says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job's answer is to say that God's in control. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. I don't understand what's going on, but I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Job's answer is also to say that he just is too simple to understand the mind of God. I don't, I don't get it. Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. The solution to the problem of evil is neither to say that God is not in control, nor is it to say that God is not good, but to hold those things zealously together that God is in control and that God is good. Uh, as Don Carson explains, the picture that the Bible's, that's the picture that the Bible gives. The picture is that God stands behind good and evil, what he calls asymmetrically. That is, he stands behind good and evil in different ways. So Carson writes, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty. Yet the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It's always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes, like people. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. What Carson means is this. The Bible simply maintains that God is absolutely good and absolutely in control and that everything good comes from him. While every evil is completely within his sovereign purpose and completely within his plan without it being God's fault. It's a hard thing for us to understand. Uh, if you want to know more about that and think more deeply about that, I strongly encourage you to read uh, the book that that quote came from by Don Carson, How Long, O Lord, uh, which is a book about how to understand suffering. The long and short of it all is, is that evil, uh, even in evil we can trust God, we can trust that God is in control and, and that God is absolutely good. The two are absolutely essential as well. Uh, if God is not in control of evil, then we can't trust God. We can sort of hope that this time or next time God might be in control, but we can never be sure. But the Bible says that we can be sure. We can trust God even in the midst of terrible evil. We can trust God in the midst of persecution. We can trust God in the midst of great suffering. On the other hand, if God is uh, not good then we can have no confidence that God's control will turn out for our good. If God is not good, then who knows, maybe this time God is just being nasty. But that's not what the Bible says either. The Bible says that even in the midst of terrible evil, God is doing good. As Paul so famously says in Romans 8, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according
according to his purpose. God can use great evil for great good. That doesn't mean that the evil that we experience is good. No. It's not good to be persecuted. It's not good to suffer. It's not good to lose someone that you love. But God can work great evil for great good. And we know that because of the cross. That doesn't mean, of course, that we have no responsibility if God is in control. The picture that uh, that the Bible presents is a world in which God is absolutely in control and we are absolutely responsible. The best example of that comes in Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul puts two truths together. We need to work, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works in us to fulfill his good purpose. We need to work. God is in control. The fact that God is in control means that we can rest in him and not worry. It means that we can make decisions using all the wisdom that's available to us and we can trust that God will work. We can trust that God will work all things according to the purpose of his will. We don't have to agonize endlessly about whether we're in the center of God's will. Of course we are. We can't help being in the center of God's will. God works all things out according to the purpose of his will. Knowing God is in control brings a great freedom to our lives. But on the other hand, the fact that we're absolutely responsible means that we can't just say, well, it doesn't matter, God's got it sorted. I don't need to try, I don't need to do anything, I don't need to think about that, I'll just trust God and just get on with life. No. Our responsibility is to do our best to seek God's will as he's revealed it to us in the Bible. It's our responsibility to be wise, to seek, to honour God in all that we do. And yet even as we do that, Because God is in control, we can do that without stressing and without worrying. So what does God do? God has created everything and now he upholds everything. Uh, And that shapes our lives. We can trust him uh, and we can uh, rely on him. But finally, God not only creates and upholds, God is also in the business of remaking Uh, and recreating. Uh, In the last chapters of the Bible, we see a grand vision in Revelation 21 of what God will do at the end. So the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, 
I am making everything new. What is God going to do? God is going to make the world new. He's going to remove death and mourning and crying and pain. God is going to remake the world as he intended it to be. And that's good news, isn't it? Because it doesn't take much to see that the world that we live in is not as good as it should be. It doesn't take much to see that the world that we live in is a broken world. Actually, sometimes the world that we live in is just plain awful, isn't it? I know, I know a guy who just some days would say he just can't face the thought of going on living. Because the world is an awful place to be in. It's not what it's supposed to be. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. Our rejection and our rebellion against God has wrecked this world. But you know, the good news is that God's plan is not to remain in control of a broken world. God's great gospel plan is not to just control a world which is broken and distorted by sin and evil. Not for all eternity. God's great gospel plan is to take this broken and distorted world and to remake it as it was supposed to be. And God's great gospel plan is to make not just the world new, but to make the people who live in it new as well. The great miracle is is that if we link up with Jesus, if we entrust ourselves to Jesus, then even though the brokenness of this world and the distortion of this world is our fault, the great miracle is that if we link up with Jesus, then God promises to include us in that new world as well. We get to share through Jesus' death and resurrection in a world made right. Well, if you belong to Jesus and you've entrusted yourself to him, then that's God's guarantee to you of what he will do. It's great to know that God is in control of our lives, but it's even better to know that one day the world will be fixed. And it's great to know that God is in control of our lives and watches over us at every moment. But it's even better news, I think, to know that one day our lives will be fixed once and for all. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the maker and creator of this whole world and that you made this world good that your great plan was to make a world 
in which we could live for your glory and honour and in which we could know you and enjoy you and relate to you like children to a father. And yet, Lord, we live in a world that is so broken and distorted, uh, at times so painful. Lord, help us to trust even in the evil that you're in control and help us to trust even in the good that you're in control. That every good gift comes from you, our Lord and our Maker. And Lord, we pray particularly for those who despair uh, even of life itself uh, and who struggle to think of going on uh, in such a frustrating and disappointing uh, and evil world. Lord, we ask that you would draw close to them and assure them of your love even in the midst of great darkness uh, and in great valleys. But Lord, too, we pray that you would set before us that great vision which John saw of a heavenly city dressed as a bride for her Lord. A vision of a new Jerusalem, a new meeting place between God and man. A place in which every pain and every evil is taken away. And the evil, Lord, not just in the world out there, but the evil that lives in our hearts and which destroys and distorts our lives and the lives of those around us. Lord, we thank you so much that you invite us to be part of that world through Jesus Christ. And Lord, many of us have taken hold of that invitation and received him and received that promise. And so Lord, we pray that you would press in our hearts more and more every day that great hope and certain joy of a world put right, of a world made to be what it was always intended to be. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.